Good morning again. Last week we looked at some of Paul's letters. We saw that Paul uh, worked with and affirmed and praised women in ministry. We looked at women like Phoebe and Prisca and Junia and Nympha, women who, according to all of the best evidence, seem to have been leaders and teachers in the early church. Uh, we see that the, the language that Paul used describing his female colleagues in ministry is the same language he often used describing his male colleagues in ministry. And so I just want to remind you of the bottom line that we talked about last week, um, to lead into this week. So last week here was the bottom line. I said it, it is abundantly clear that Paul knew about, worked with, and praised female leaders and teachers in the church. I believe that's what the evidence shows. This is what Paul did. This is what Paul did. He knew about, he worked with, and he praised female leaders and teachers in the church. So in light of that, in light of what Paul did, I want to read you something that Paul said. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. So based on everything we looked at last week, all of us are probably doing something like this. Right? In light of what Paul did, knowing about working with praising women in ministry... It doesn't make a whole lot of sense for Paul to say what he did, right? At first glance, it appears that what Paul said contradicts what Paul actually did. So in light of this apparent contradiction, I want to give us maybe five potential options to explain what's going on here. First of all, option number one, perhaps we just misunderstood the roles of all of the women that Paul talked about. Perhaps Phoebe and Prisca and Junia and Nympha were not actually leaders and teachers in the first century church, despite all of the evidence that, that suggests that they were. Perhaps we've just misunderstood all of that, all of that overwhelming evidence. Perhaps we've just, we've just got it wrong. Uh, this seems unlikely to me. Uh, I think it goes against the evidence that we saw in the text itself. It goes against uh, what the early church leaders, we looked at people like Origen and John Chrysostom and all of these people who identified women in ministry and, and, and said very similar things. So it seems unlikely to me that, that we've misunderstood the roles of all these women. So that brings us to option number two. Paul was a hypocrite who spoke out of both sides of his mouth, right? He did one thing and then said another somewhere else. Now, I'm not comfortable with that option. I, that doesn't seem to make sense uh, to me. I don't think that's a good way to, to explain the evidence. So that leads us to option number three. Paul changed his mind about women in leadership later in life. Maybe as he got older and he saw all of these women just doing silly things and wrecking the church, he said, ah, you know, I changed my mind. You know, no, no women in leadership. Um, I just... I. I don't think there's any evidence to support that. I don't think that's a good explanation of what was going on that seems unlikely to me, uh, which leads us to option number four. First Timothy was written by someone else claiming to be Paul. There are some scholars who believe this. They, they, they look at the language of, of um, you know, the, some of the words and the language of First Timothy, and they believe that it was uh, somebody else claiming to be Paul later in life. Um, it wasn't actually Paul. I, I don't find that argument very convincing. I, I happen to believe, um, you know, contrary to some, some 
scholars that 1 Timothy was written by who it claims to be written by. I just don't find that argument very convincing. Which leads me to number five. Perhaps in 1 Timothy, Paul was addressing a specific cultural issue, not making a universal statement. Perhaps Paul was addressing a specific cultural issue, not making a universal statement. This is the position that I'm going to argue for in this message. Um, In the process, I am going to walk you through the process of interpreting difficult passages of Scripture. So, um, it's a process that, uh, in scholarship, we call exegesis. Everybody say, exegesis. Exegesis. That's the process of interpreting Scripture. Uh, I'll give you another definition here in a minute. Uh, So, I just want to warn you from today's sermon is going to feel a little bit less like a sermon, and it's going to feel a little bit more like a Sunday school class. Um, I'm going to get into some technical stuff. It's going to be a little bit more detailed historically and culturally. It's going to be less preaching, more a little bit teaching. So so for those of you who are into sort of the nerdy stuff, you might really like this message. For those of you who are are hoping for some, you know, real inspirational, you know, preaching, you'll just have to, you know, wait till next week. I'm going to help you unpack Scripture. So, uh, here is the definition of exegesis, okay? Exegesis is the careful, systematic study of the Scripture to discover the original intended meaning. The careful, systematic study of the Scripture to discover the original intended meaning. Now, this quote comes from this book, called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. For those of you who enjoy reading the Bible, if you want to understand how to read the Bible and understand it, I I think this is like a, this should be a mandatory book for all Christians to read because it helps understand how the Bible ought to be read and understood properly. Um, So, as we work through this process of exegesis, this careful systematic study, there's one word that I want to make sure that we we hold on to, and that word is context. Context. When it comes to interpreting Scripture, especially difficult passages of Scripture, and I believe this is a difficult passage of Scripture, when it comes to interpreting Scripture, context is king. Context is king. Now, there are several different kinds of context that we need to be aware of, several different kinds of context. The first is literary context, literary context. That means verses in the Bible don't exist in a vacuum, right? Actually, as a matter of fact, the verses that you have in your Bible, those little numbers that we have, verses, they were not in the original. Believe it or not, when Paul wrote his letters, he didn't number his sentences in verses. He just wrote letters, Later on, scribes and translators and people who tried to make it easier to understand so everybody could be on the same page, they added chapter divisions and verse divisions. Those were not original to the letter. When you write a letter to your friends, you probably don't include chapter headings and verse numbers, right? These were added later. Um, so verses don't exist in a vacuum. There are, there are individual words in longer sentences, in longer paragraphs, in entire letters or books or stories. And so when we approach a difficult passage, a difficult verse, we need to look at the verse in its context. What are the verses before? 
What are the verses after? What is the whole letter or the whole book trying to say? That can help us shed light on a difficult passage. So this is literary context. We're going to look at the literary context of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, a little bit later in this message. Um, but there's also another kind of context. We have literary context, which is the context right in the passage itself, the, the paragraphs preceding and following. There's also historical context. What was going on in history at the time that this particular document was written? That can help us understand what's being said. Uh, specifically, what is the history in the community where the letter was written and where it was received? What was going on in history at this time? For example, if you were to stumble across a letter from a soldier in World War II writing home, and you didn't know that the letter came from World War II, you might be very confused about some of the language in the letter, right? But if you understand the, the overall historical context of World War II, then maybe some references to different countries or different events might start to make more sense in light of what we know about the historical context at the time. Again, these documents that we have in Scripture were written at a specific time in history when there were specific things going on, things that the, the authors of the documents and the recipients of the documents would have known, but that we don't automatically think about in our day and time, right? So we have to understand the historical context. There's also cultural context, cultural context. Believe it or not, first century Jewish and Greco-Roman culture is different than 21st century American culture. Did you know that? Different cultures interpret similar things in different ways. Not every, not every word or every action means the same thing in every culture. Let me give you a silly example. If you were to travel to Japan and somebody served you dinner and you left a tip on the table, that would be viewed as rude and inconsiderate. Because in that culture, tipping is, is considered to be rude. Whereas in America... If you don't leave a tip on the table when you're served dinner, it's viewed as rude, right? So the very same action or non-action in different cultures can be interpreted in very different ways. Perhaps you've done this. Perhaps you have unintentionally offended somebody from a different culture because you didn't know that whatever particular action or word that was common to you was offensive to them. This happens regularly. It's why, you know, we have cultural trainings, you know, for people who, who you know, missionaries who go overseas or business people who, who work in different countries. We help explain the, the different cultures and customs so that there's not this clash. We have to understand the historical and cultural context the Jewish and Greco-Roman culture of the Bible was very different from ours. And there were things about that culture that we don't necessarily think about when we read the Scripture, and we need people who are experts in that to help unpack that for us. So we're going to take a look at each of these uh, contexts in the letter of 1 Timothy to see if we can piece together what's going on in, in the letter as a whole in that time in history, in that culture, to see if there's something there that can help us make sense of this apparent contradiction. Why Paul, who in, in one place praises women who lead and serve and teach, um, and in another place says, I do not permit this. We're going to see if, if there's some sort of historical and cultural something going on that will help us reconcile this apparent contradiction in Scripture. So we're going to start with literary context, and we're going to go to the very beginning of the letter, because at the very beginning of the letter, we're going to, we're going to learn a few things that's going to help us when we get to this problematic passage in chapter 2. 
So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father of Christ Jesus our Lord. So in other words, when we go back to the very beginning of this letter, we see that we have a personal letter from the Apostle Paul to his protege named Timothy. Timothy was, uh, Paul was sort of Timothy's mentor. He was, uh, Timothy was Paul's protege. Paul was training Timothy how to be a leader in the church. And so what we have here is a letter from one leader to another leader, uh, from one person to his mentor, explaining how to deal with certain issues that were going on. Uh, So that raises a question. Why is Paul writing this particular letter to Timothy? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Um, We'll continue to read. That's a great principle when you're studying Scripture. If you don't know, continue to read. Lots of times answers are right there in the context. So Paul goes on. He says, As I urged you, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So from this letter, we learn that Timothy is in the city of Ephesus, the ancient city of Ephesus, which was in the the Turkey, Asia, Meyer area. This is where Timothy was. Paul was somewhere else. There was something going on in Ephesus that Timothy was having some trouble dealing with. There were false teachers. There was false teaching going on in the community of Ephesus. Paul is writing to Timothy, explaining how to deal with the situation of, of false teaching that's going on in the city of Ephesus at this time. So Paul is going to give some, in, some very specific instruction to his protege to help him develop the leadership skills necessary to, to order the church correctly in the city of Ephesus in the first century. Okay? Um, so this is the historical context of the letter. This is the literary and historical context. This is what's going on. Now, I want to make something very, very clear here. Not all of Paul's instructions to Timothy are universal in nature. Not all of Paul's instruction to Timothy are universal in nature. Here's what that means. Not everything that Paul says to Timothy are we supposed to take as as gospel truth and apply directly in our lives. You might be thinking, but Thomas, it's the Bible. How do you know this? I want to give you an example. This comes from the end of the letter, chapter 5, verse 23. Here's what Paul says. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. It's in the Bible, folks. It's God's Word. So when you go out to lunch after church, you better not order water. You might be thinking, but, but, but I don't have stomach issues. I don't have frequent... It's in the Bible, folks, right? You just read it and apply it to your life. That's all you got to do. So if you're drinking a glass of water, folks, you're sinning. You're laughing because you know that that's ridiculous, right? This verse makes it very clear. We, we, we know intuitively that this verse is not meant to be directly applied to us in our lives. This was Paul knowing something about the person that he's writing to and giving him some advice to deal with some illnesses, right? This isn't 
This is not gospel truth for all of our life. This does not mean, okay, just to make this very clear, this does not mean that you can't order water at lunch, okay? Just because it's in the Bible, this is part of the context. I'm I'm being silly to make a point here, okay? Uh, You guys know better than this. Um, So in light of this, in light of the fact that we know that Paul is writing to Timothy in the first century in the city of Ephesus and that there's false teaching and division going on, that that's part of the problem there, we're going to start zooming in now on the context surrounding our problem verse. We're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, the word that is translated men here, sometimes when you read the Bible, there's, you'll see the word men, and it's a, it's a generic word that means all people, right? In this particular case, the word translated men is a men that refers specifically to males. So it's really men. He's only talking to males. Uh, the word could also be translated husbands. In the Greek, it's the same. The word that means male is also the same as the word that means husband. Uh, so he's talking to the males, to the men. He says, men everywhere, when you pray, lift up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, men, how many of you, when you pray, lift up holy hands? Anybody? Anybody lift up holy hands when you pray? Sometimes. 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 Now, most of us probably don't. Most of the time when we pray, we probably don't lift up. Sometimes we might, but, but this is not, Paul is not saying that in order to pray and be heard by God, you have to lift up holy hands. He, lifting up hands to pray was common to ancient cultures in prayer, Jews and, and others. It would be common for them when they prayed to, to lift up their hands sort of as to receive a blessing from God or, or something else. Paul's not saying that you have to lift up holy hands to pray, men. Okay, um, the emphasis here is on doing things w- without anger and disputing. We know in the culture, there in, in the context, there were false teachings, there was division, there was sort of infighting. Paul saying, "Listen, pray for your leaders, pray for what's going on around you, pray for the world, and stop fighting with each other." It's basically, what Paul's saying here. He's not saying you have to lift up your hands to pray. Okay, so you can if you want to, you don't have to. Um, so after addressing the men. Paul then switches to the women. Here's what he says. I want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, how many of you braided your hair today? Who's wearing gold jewelry? Women? Paul said, don't, right? Can't braid that hair. Can't wear that gold jewelry. How much you pay for those clothes? Right? Now, here's what's interesting. I, I, I'm being silly. I'm being facetious to make a point. What's interesting is that very few people who look at 1 Timothy 2.12 and believe it's a universal prohibition on women in ministry, very few of them believe that Paul is making a universal prohibition on braided hair or gold jewelry or nice clothes. It's interesting. Here is where historical and cultural context become really important. Who remembers where Timothy was? Where was Timothy? What city? Ephesus. Timothy was in Ephesus. Who knows 
about Ephesus. What, what was significant about Ephesus in the ancient world? Anybody know? John? Yes, yes. Ephesus was the home for the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana. Okay? Uh, this temple, this is a, a replica of it, a, a, a scale replica of it. Um, this was in the heart of Ephesus, and it, it was what made Ephesus great. As a matter of fact, um, it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This temple was magnificent. It was magnificent, and it was the home of the worship of Artemis or Diana. Artemis is like the Greek name. Diana is the Roman name. Uh, Artemis of Ephesus was a female goddess, and worship of Artemis dominated every aspect of Ephesian culture. If you go back and you read the book of Acts, when Paul shows up in Ephesus and they start um, challenging the idea that, that God is not worshipped in, in graven images, the people who make, and I'm going to show you one, who made little figurines to Diana were afraid that they were going to lose their business. This is what everything in, in Ephesus was centered around worship of Diana. As they, they had, a, they had a, a, a phrase, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, or, or great is Diana of the Ephesians. This was, you know, people would come from all over the world to visit this magnificent temple of Artemis in the city of Ephesus. Interestingly, the cult of Artemis, the religion of Artemis, was a religion in which women were the leaders. Women were the priestesses and the high priestesses. They sort of ran the whole Artemis cult. And there, you know, there's lots of good stuff you can read about this, but they were the primary leaders in this particular religion, to which Paul is writing a letter to Timothy living in the city where everything in the city is characterized by worship to Artemis. Now, Paul doesn't need to say that in the letter because Timothy knows that, right? Paul is writing a letter to Timothy who's there. All of the people there already know what's going on. Paul doesn't need to say, because you're living in Ephesus and the worship of Artemis is central to what's going on there, because it was context that they already knew, okay? So now I'm going to show you a picture of um, a, a statue of Artemis. I want you to uh, it's kind of hard to see from where you are, but, but if you look closely, you can see that Artemis was decked out in really ornate apparel. You can sort of see, you know, she's got um, jewelry all around her neck and, and just really ornate apparel and clothing. And some of the statues, when I looked a little bit closer, it, it, it appears as if she has braided hair. Right? It's, it's hard to see in this one, but in some of the other statues I looked at, it appears as though she has braided hair. So we have this, this goddess who is central to life in Ephesus, who has braided hair, ornate jewelry, and ornate clothing. What is Paul cautioning women against? Braided hair, ornate jewelry, and ornate clothing. Now, what's really interesting, and this is going to become important later... Artemis was the goddess of fertility and childbearing in Ephesus. Artemis was the goddess of fertility and childbearing in Ephesus. In other words, when women wanted to get pregnant, or when they were pregnant and were going to give birth, they would pray to Artemis. They would pray to keep her, they would pray that Artemis would keep them safe through the process of giving birth. 
Uh, so I'm going to read you now a quote from a scholar who has studied the ancient culture of Ephesus very extensively. He's read you know, all of the ancient documentation about the city of Ephesus. And from that, he has helped us piece together the, the culture surrounding Ephesus and, and the worship of Artemis. And here's what he says. This is Dr. Gary Hogue. He says, evidence from ancient sources shows that the rich Ephesian women modeled the way for all Ephesian women to plait their hair like the goddess, to dress, to imitate the goddess, to promote the myth that she was the author of all life. In other words, Artemis was not a goddess that you would offer sacrifices to. The way that women often worshipped Artemis by was what they wore. By, by dressing like the goddess, it was an act of worship to Artemis. And so Paul, in prohibiting women from, in Ephesus from wearing the stuff, he's trying to draw a distinction between the worship of Artemis and the worship of the God of Jesus Christ. He's saying because the, 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 uh, the culture in Ephesus is such that dressing this way, everybody knows that dressing this way is worship to Artemis. We're going to draw some lines of distinction so that people don't think that when we gather together in our services to worship God, that we're actually worshiping Artemis of Ephesus, right? Here's where cultural context can really help us start to unpack and understand what's going on in this particular passage. So ladies, your jewelry is fine. Okay, you don't need to leave it at home next Sunday. It's okay to wear it. If you want to braid your hair, it's okay. You can braid your hair. Paul is not making a universal prohibition on jewelry, hair, and dress. Now, so in light of this context, in light of the fact that we know that Paul is already addressing very specific things to the culture of Ephesus, let's look at our problem verses. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Here's what Paul says. A woman, a woman, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, there's a bunch of really strange things about these two verses. First, in the preceding verses, he addresses men plural and women plural, and all of a sudden, he 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 shifts from plural to singular. He doesn't say women should learn in quietness. He says a woman. Maybe it's a big deal, maybe it's not. Some scholars looking at this have, have postulated that Paul is referring to one specific woman in Ephesus who was causing problems for Paul. The fact that he shifts from plural to singular might mean he's addressing one particular woman who's causing some problems. That is one possible interpretation interpretation. I don't know how convincing it is, but it's, it's possible. Um, the other things that are interesting is, is some of the words that Paul uses here, and because we don't read Greek, we don't, we don't see the nuance, but, but some of the words that Paul uses here in Greek are, are words that are very unique. He doesn't use a lot of these words anywhere else or, or very often in the New Testament. Quietness is one of them. Authority is one of them. The words that he uses for those things in other places are different than the words that he uses for those things here, which is in interesting. Now, a lot of folks, when they look at this passage, they like to emphasize the, the quietness and the submission part of it. Women should learn in quietness and submission, right? Women should be seen and not heard. 
I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think what's more interesting here, the part that really should be emphasized is this. A woman should learn. Right? As we saw a couple of weeks ago with Jesus including females among his disciples, this was very radical for the time. People back then didn't believe that women should learn, didn't believe that women should have time to study. Right? So for Paul to say a woman should learn is already emphasizing women more than lots of the other uh, culture of the time, even Jewish culture. For Paul to say women should be given space to study and learn is a pretty big deal. So Paul's already being progressive by saying a woman should learn. Now this word quietness I think is better translated as peacefulness. The, uh, the world-renowned New Testament scholar N.T. Wright uh, suggests it should be translated undisturbed. He says women should be permitted to study undisturbed. That's how he translates this verse. A woman should be permitted to study undisturbed. Why? Because up until that point, you, know, we, you have a culture in which women are the, the leaders in the church, and before they, they come over and assume that they start leading again, they need to have time to study, to learn the teachings of the Christian faith. She's saying give, give women room and time and permission to study and to learn. This is a pretty big deal. Uh, she must be left undisturbed is how N.T. Wright would translate that. Um, the verse goes on. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, what's interesting is that the, the word I've highlighted here, assume authority, comes from one Greek word, and it's the only time this Greek word ever shows up in the Bible. Right? Paul talks about authority in a lot of places, but he never uses this word. It's althentain in the Greek. For those of you who keep track at home, althentain. When, whenever Paul talks about authority in other places, he always uses the Greek word exousia. This particular word is different, which has is, which is led scholars to think that Paul is getting at something different here. They, they think that this word uh, means something similar to usurp authority or, or to overthrow or to be domineering. That, that this word means that he's saying that I don't permit a woman to dominate, to overthrow, to be domineering. Why would this matter? Because in the culture of Ephesus, where the women are the assumed leaders of the religious movement, he's saying, listen, before women come in and just start thinking they can take everything over, just like it is in Artemis, they need to be given room to study and to learn. I don't permit women to just come in, just like they do in Artemis, and automatically be in charge and teach without having time to study. This, this makes perfect sense in a culture where women were the assumed religious leaders. So, tying it all together, I'm going to give you a summary here. In light of the potential for false teaching, which we saw in the beginning of the letter to Timothy, women in Ephesus should not simply assume authority in the church without having had the proper training. This makes sense in the culture and it makes sense with what we know about Paul's other approval of women in leadership positions elsewhere in his letters. We're, we're starting to see this apparent contradiction is being smoothed out. But it gets even better. We're going we're to continue on in this passage, and I'm going to show you how it gets even better. Uh, here's what Paul says. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, folks who, who read this without cultural context, they believe that Paul is talking about that because man was created before woman, that, excuse me, man was created to be domineering over woman, that woman was created to be in subjection to man. But 
a few weeks ago, at the very beginning of this series, we studied the book of Genesis. And I, and I showed you that that's not the proper interpretation of the creation narrative in Genesis, that man created, that God created man and woman to be equal. Uh, so, so Paul, it, it wouldn't make sense then for Paul to say that, that because man was created first, he was uh, to be in authority over woman. Here's where understanding the culture, again, helps us understand what's going on in this argument. Gary Hogue, uh, the, the scholar I mentioned earlier, has this to say from his study of Ephesus. He says, in plain terms, Ephesian women believed and promoted through community engagement in cultic activities that the woman came first and that sin came into the world through man. In other words, the, the, the teaching of the Artemisian religion was that the goddess created life and that it was the man who introduced sin into the world and not the woman, right? It, it, flipping the biblical narrative in Genesis. This was the common teaching in Ephesus. So in other words, what we see here, uh, it, it, it appears that the Ephesian women, accustomed to being religious leaders, were usurping authority and were spreading a false teaching that sin came into the world through men and not through women. This makes perfect sense in light of what Paul is writing to Timothy, who's living where? In Ephesus. Very good. You're paying attention. So, and it gets even better. It gets even better. The next verse, verse 15, says this. But, Paul writes, women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. For for long, long time. This verse has confused a lot of people, right? Women are saved through childbearing? You mean I have to have kids if I want to be saved? That doesn't fit with anything else Paul wrote anywhere. What is going on in this verse? What do you mean women are saved through childbearing? And people have, you know, trying to understand how this fits with the rest of Paul, people have done all sorts of, you know, some people actually believe that, like women have to have children to be saved, which is just nuts, Excuse me, that's not kind. Um, it's, it doesn't fit with what else Paul says about salvation, other places in Scripture. That's a better way to say that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith. So, what did I tell you earlier? What was Artemis the goddess of? Fertility and childbearing. Who would Ephesian women pray to to keep them safe in the process of giving birth? Artemis. Not only that, Gary Hogue helps us see that Ephesian women actually believed that if you left, if you abandoned the Artemis cult, Artemis would take vengeance on you and kill you as you gave birth. They believed this. They believed that if you left the Artemis cult, that she would take vengeance on you and you would die during childbirth. And so they were afraid, right? And so now this verse that has, has just stumped people for ages because they don't know, what do you mean women are safe for childbirth? Well, now this makes perfect sense. Women who come to Christ and leave the Artemis cult can still have the hope that they'll be kept safe through childbirth. They don't need to be afraid that Artemis is going to kill them that they're going to die giving childbirth. Paul is saying they will be kept safe through childbearing. So here's the summary. Every single aspect 
of Paul's instructions about women in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, makes infinitely more sense in light of Ephesian culture. No longer do we have to do all of these exegetical gymnastics to say, oh, well, Paul didn't really mean braids and gold hair. He just meant, you know, don't dress too fancy, right? Paul, you know, it, this whole section makes perfect sense in light of the culture in which Timothy was living and ministering, a culture with, that Timothy was familiar with and Paul was familiar with, and therefore Paul didn't need to spell all of that out. Paul didn't need to say, don't tell, tell women not to wear the same clothes as Artemis because Artemis wears them and that's devoted to Artemis. They already knew that, right? So this whole section makes infinitely more sense in light of the cultural and historical context in the city of Ephesus where Timothy was living. So here's the bottom line. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, should not be read as a universal prohibition in po- on positions of teaching, let me say that, okay. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, should not be read as a universal prohibition on women in positions of teaching and leadership in the church. Now, again, this isn't necessarily a, a problem in this particular church, in this particular congregation, but as I've interacted with um, clergy and Christians from lots of different denominations, that, this is still a very common theme. Whenever I talk about having a, a woman come to, you know, preach when I'm gone, somebody says, have you read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12? It says women can't teach in the church. And, and people will go to this verse, and that's what they'll point to. And they'll say, you're, you're violating God's word. And I say, do you, think, do you think women can wear braids to church? And they say, well... Yeah? You know, do you think women are, are saved by having kids? Well, no. So for some reason, we've picked this one particular verse out, and we've emphasized it as some universal prohibition on women in ministry, while sort of just ignoring the, other, the rest and realizing that they are cultural things. This culture helps us make sense of the entire thing. So again, I know that in this room, Most, if not all of you, are perfectly comfortable having women come up and lead and teach, but I want you to be informed. I want you to know about the arguments that are happening out there. And for those of you women who may feel called to lead or to preach or to teach, uh, either in the room or who are watching online or listening to this in the future, I want you to know that that the, the best exegesis, I believe, the best exegesis of this passage of Scripture indicates to us that this is not a universal prohibition on women leading and teaching. And the beautiful thing about all this is, is this now, the rest of Paul makes perfect sense, right? We don't have to, we don't have to pit Paul, what Paul did against what Paul seems to have said. So this is the process. We, you know, Sunday school is coming to an end. Uh, this is the process of exegesis, a careful systematic study to understand the original intent of the author. So when we approach a difficult section of Scripture, and it seems to contradict other parts, we, we start to dig into the context, the literary context, the historical context, and the cultural context. And oftentimes when we do that, what seems to be a contradiction in Scripture is most often just a contradiction in our understanding of history and culture and context. And in light of that, 
we can without reservation celebrate and affirm and praise and encourage our sisters who feel like God has gifted them and called them and is leading them into positions of leadership and ministry in the church. And I don't think this is interesting just because it, I think it's more than interesting. I think it's important, right? I think that God has created us, male and female, and he has gifted us, male and female alike, and we need the gifts that everybody has to bring. And so for us to impose a limit on someone just because of their gender or their sex and say, oh, well, you can't do that, first of all, places us in the position of God who gifts and calls without our permission. But we need those perspectives. I have been blessed and encouraged and ministered to by strong, prominent female leaders and teachers in the church. They help me understand what God is like and, and understand the Scripture and understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a way that I don't understand because of my perspective. We need what everybody has to bring. And, and so now, if, if you... If you have been struggling with, well, I, you know, I've been blessed by women in ministry, but how, but, 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 but Paul says, now you have the exegetical tools and background and framework to say, you know what? Yes, Paul said that, but here's what Paul meant in this particular culture, and here is how this fits within Paul's overall ministry, and here's how this fits within the overall picture of, of how God has created women to be from the very beginning, and how he has called and empowered them at various times throughout history. So this is the very end of our unsung series. We, have, we began by looking at Adam and Eve in Genesis, and seeing that from the very beginning that God created women to be Ezer Konegdos, powers equal to men, right alongside, that sin entered the world, and with sin, patriarchy. And for a long time, men dominated over women, but this was never God's intention. And yet, even in a culture of patriarchy, God would show up, and he would pick women at crucial times in the history of God's people to rise up and to lead and to teach and to prophesy, saviors and deliverers of God's people and deliverers of God's word. We saw that Jesus came along, and counterculturally, against everything else, he started to lift women up to a position of equality, including them in his disciples, sending them out as his ministers, and trusting them to be the very first preachers of the gospel. We saw that the Apostle Paul, who planted you know, churches across the Mediterranean basin, wrote half the New Testament, he, he praised women and worked with women in positions of leadership everywhere he went. He, he worked right alongside women. And now we can see that one particular verse that's often used to keep women down does not mean that at all. And I believe this matters. And I believe it's important. So now, you know better. And if you have questions, you can talk to me afterwards. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for preserving for us these documents that we have collected in our Bible, that we believe that you were involved in their inspiration, uh, in their writing, in their preservation, and, and how they teach us about you and your vision for the world. And uh, Lord, I, I thank you for the scholars who work tirelessly to, to investigate the history and the culture, uh, who, who, who spend their lives studying these ancient documents so that we can better understand these scriptures that we believe have come from you. Um, I just thank you for, for their labor of love in doing that, to help shed light on the original context and setting of these scriptures. And more than that, God, I just thank you that you are a God who has created us male and female and have, has empowered and called people from both to, to love and to serve and to lead and to teach 
Father, I thank you for those that you have called and gifted, and I pray especially for those women within our own tradition and others who are feeling the tug of your spirit, who are feeling your calling and your gifting. I just pray that you would, you would give them the courage to pursue their calling in the face of um, the misuse of your scriptures. Lord, I thank you for this particular congregation, for their willingness to explore difficult topics and go in depth in some of these things, and I just pray that you would continue to use us to maybe model the way for for others to see that you are a God who calls and equips uh, both men and women without reservation and without our permission. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness, for your providence and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.